This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. My name is Deborah Fitzgerald, and you're listening to the Dora County Pulse podcast. And today I have a guest joining us who is in Washington, D.C., joining us by phone. His name is Stephen Kenny. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Deborah. Thanks for joining us. And so who is Stephen Kenny? Our listeners want to know. Stephen Kenny is an outreach and policy associate for Transportation for America. And we discovered Transportation for America when we were working on our sustainability issue a couple of weeks ago, which is all about transportation, specifically in Door County, and how to make those better connections. So I was just thrilled. Uh, Somebody recommended your site to me, your organization to me, and I went on the site. And we actually have one of Stephen's blogs in that sustainability issue. So again, welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Deborah. It's great to be here. Okay. And so can you give us a little bit of an overview of who Transportation for America is? Sure. Transportation for America is part of Smart Growth America, and we are the transportation advocacy arm of Smart Growth America. So that meaning we are a an advocacy organization made up of leaders from around the country that join us as members, that inform our advocacy, that contribute to it. But at our core, we are a mission-driven organization that we advocate for federal, state, and local transportation policy based on our three principles. So let's get into those three principles right away. I mean, well, actually not right away. Let's defer that just a little bit because there was a there was something in your bio. I want to know more about you and, and how you actually got involved with the work that you do. But there was a line in your bio that particularly intrigued me. Not that you're a New Jersey resident, <laughs> but that hmm. you have an admittedly spiritual dedication to ensuring that people can live in safe, prosperous, inclusive, and equitable places. So tell me, did you just wake up one morning and decide that you wanted to be a transportation advocate? <laughs> no, <laughs> okay. actually. You know, I, I wish, right? Because yeah. then it could be some divine inspiration that I could call upon. No, so I've always been interested in the public sector as a vehicle for uh, marshalling power towards goals that can help people, right? And and that's a pretty general, you know, that that phrase is almost a dime a dozen in policy schools and political science classes across the country. But I was in grad school getting my master's of public policy and trying to figure out exactly what niche of this world I wanted to fit into. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in health, you know, making sure that people could live in, you know, healthy places where they, you know, could, could thrive. I was interested in education, giving people an equal start in life. Hmm. And then I found land use policy, transportation obviously being a core element of that, transportation and housing. Okay. And I found transportation and housing policy to be this overarching, almost prerequisite for any of these policies. Okay. So, you know, how can we create healthy communities without having places where people can breathe clean air and be able to walk to where they want to go? How can we, you know, achieve a nation that has uh, significant levels of heart health and reduced levels of heart disease Mm -hmm. if we aren't giving people the opportunity to bike 
around their neighborhoods from a young age? How can we give people access to jobs and services without giving them the transit that they need to get there? So that is sort of how I came upon transportation policy as Mm -hmm. sort of this uh, broad, really impactful area of public policy that can affect all of these others that we are so interested in. Okay. And it's really interesting how that works too, because transportation, when we were considering that for our sustainability issue, we came at it kind of in a, you know, we went very broad, like looking at the components or the metrics that determine whether or not a community is a healthy community and finally drill down into infrastructure and then transportation. And it is so elemental that most people don't even think of it. It's kind of like the air we breathe, like we don't think about the quality of the air we breathe. Transportation, if we can't get around and we can't do it in a healthy way, in a way that's good for us and the planet at the same time, then pretty much everything else breaks down. Of course. And you mentioned New Jersey. And while I don't currently live in New Jersey, I am a proud and insufferably proud New Jersey native. (laughs) And growing up in my community of Natuchin, New Jersey, I, like you said, took it for granted. I was able to walk to all of my friends' houses. I was able to walk to my Little League games. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad took the train into work every day, and frankly, he was happier for it, right? It almost made him a better father sometimes. You sure. Know, he uh, just had all this great access, you know, trains to Philadelphia, trains to New York City from where I was at, going in to see Broadway shows, going in to bike around New York City with my friends, just all of this great Right. I took it for granted. And not every place that I've lived since has had that. Right. And my goal in my work is to make sure that every kid in every community around the country can grow up in the wonderful environment that I did. Right. And, you know, that commuting time is a big thing. I mean, being able to relax on the train, you know, as you're coming home from work, that that evening or morning commute can be, you know, so stressful for people on top of, you know, being this just massive, congestive polluting machine. But I do have to say that I actually lived in Morristown for a little while, Morristown, New Jersey. And my spouse is from Piscataway. So I'm very familiar with New Jersey. It's a beautiful state. And I don't think that people understand that unless they've lived there for a little while. You know, we, we have we have this reputation, but we wear it proudly. Um, <laughs> and if you don't like us, you know, don't come by. Well, there's a reason it's called the Garden State, right? That's right. Jersey tomatoes, very fresh. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Also underrated are our blueberries. <laughs> oh, um, really? Okay. Yeah, look for them at your local supermarket. <laughs> okay, I will. So we're getting <laughs> way promise. off track now here. But let's, so let's go back to... <laughs> I'm not to... getting paid by the New Jersey government, <laughs> yeah. I promise. <laughs> let's go back to Transportation for America. Now, you had started out, you were going to be talking about the three principles that kind of drive the organization. Can you just, you know, briefly summarize those for us? Sure. So the first principle is prioritizing maintenance. We find that often local and state departments of transportation will prioritize expanding and building new roads, right? Politicians love to cut ribbons. Whereas most of the need in our transportation system is in maintenance, right? You hear it all the time, crumbling roads and bridges. And that's not because there hasn't been money to do it. It's because there's been to to fix those things. Well, that's, that's part of it. But largely it's been, you know, a lot of local decisions to deprioritize maintenance in favor of expanding roads and building new ones, as well as a severe lack of federal support for operating costs. And I can go into that a little more later. Okay. The second principle 
is designing for safety over speed. The fundamental, I don't know if people know this, the fundamental priority when designing roads is speed. Hmm. A lot of times planners will set a speed for a road before they determine anything else. Hmm. So they'll say, oh, we want to make this road 55 miles an hour. Great. And then afterwards, after you say that cars are going to be speeding on this road, you say, hmm, let's have a bike lane there. Hmm. Now, we see this as conflict, right? Sure. Or, or, or we want to put, you know, great pedestrian facilities. Well, if cars are speeding by 55 miles an hour, who's going to want to bike on that road? Right. Who's going to want to walk on that road? And there's a matter of want, and then there's a matter of need. Often people, primarily those disadvantaged, need to walk and bike on those roads and are killed at disproportionate rates. Hmm. We find that not only have deaths from people being struck and killed by cars as pedestrians has risen steadily over the past 10 years, but that burden has not been felt equally and has been felt disproportionately by black and Native American individuals. Hmm. And as well as, as our older communities, people over 50 face a severely disproportionate burden of being killed in, in traffic accidents, not accidents, rather, I'll make this point now, crashes. So that's then that second principle is designing for safety over speed. It's kind of backwards the way that you're explaining it. Yes. Okay. So it's, it's a paradigm shift. Okay. It is, you know, building safety into the beginning of the design process. Okay. And then, you know, accommodating speeds that are safe. Right. And then the third principle, kind of interesting, connecting people to jobs and services. And that's what we were, you know, talking about when you were talking about all of the amenities that you had when you were growing up in a more urban area. Right. So much of our transportation system currently is designed to reduce traffic, mm. right? Build these big, wide highways, these curly queue, cul-de-sac laden suburbs, really with paying no mind to how people might walk or bike to any destination, and also creating a significant amount of traffic in the process. Mm -hmm. And this is because the, a lot of the way we measure success in the transportation industry currently is measuring congestion, right? How much traffic is mm -hmm. there on this road? Mm -hmm. How long does it take a car to get from A to B? We instead prioritize measuring accessibility or access. Mm. You know, how long does it take a person to get from their house to the nearest grocery store? Interesting. How long might it take a child to walk from their house to the nearest school? And we've developed metrics for measuring this. I'm happy to share those out with your readers. Okay. But those are, so connecting people to jobs and services, not just finding the fastest way for a car to drive on any given road. Right. Okay. Now, what we discovered as we were taking a look at this issue here, um, where we live, Door County, Wisconsin, is this peninsula that sticks out into Lake Michigan. So not only is it more rural, but, you know, it's also isolated, being a peninsula. Mm -hmm. We, in addition, it's a tourism area. So we get thousands of visitors on a seasonal basis coming up here. And on both sides of the peninsula, there are state highways that, you know, go from the bottom of the peninsula all the way to the top. And these state highways meander through these little harbor villages and towns, you know, from, from bottom to top, with the biggest city being about 10,000 in population. 
So with that type of infrastructure, we were looking at how do you change things? You know, if, if these roads, for instance, as you were pointing out, were designed for speed, which they were because they're state highways, it would follow that they were, you know, designed that way. How do you then back up the infrastructure that you have to create something that is more amenable to all kinds of active transportation, rolling, biking, walking? So first of all, and thank you for bringing this up, you would think, you know, an organization like ours that's, you know, promoting transit and active transportation, oh, we must be very focused on on urban areas. Mm. Not true. In fact, this line that a lot of our, you know, opponents to transit funding and access-based transportation measures like to point to is they say, oh, rural. Oh, rural areas don't need this. They don't want it. Mm. And we responded by saying, no, rural areas have been vastly underserved by our transportation infrastructure. Mm. Most decision makers and leaders, frankly, assume that people in rural areas just want to drive 45 minutes to get to the grocery store. (laughs) That's the baseline assumption, believe it or not. Right. No, I believe it. Sure. And we frankly say no to that and that rural communities want to be able to walk to something. And we can do this while still preserving all of the charm and great nature of that rural areas have to bring. Mm-hmm. So talking about these these state roads winding up through Door County, you know, there are many solutions and it, it's highly dependent on the local context. And frankly, as a quick plug, Transportation for America members get access to our expertise, you know, people on our staff that are planners have worked for the Department of Transportation. Mm. So you can go to our website to to learn about how to become a Transportation for America member. Mm-hmm. That would be generally public entities like counties, cities, states. Sure. To find resources when they're designing road projects on, right. you know, maybe how to back up that process. Right. So, so there are a lot of, the, you know, it, the specifics of what it's going to be. So whether it's traffic calming, whether it's adding some active transportation, whether it's adding a bus rapid transit lane mm-hmm. to better service uh, transit up and down those major corridors. Hard to say without, you know, diving more into the specific area. Sure. What I can say is it's really about design principles. Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, our three principles and more specifically, you know, who you are designing for. Mm-hmm. A lot of this process can really start early of just, you know, setting out goals and what success looks like in these projects Okay. and designing for people over cars. Sure. And that's that's kind of an interesting point that you bring up. Like if these streets were already designed with those kind of backward principles of speed over safety and you want to create a more complete street type of environment, you don't have to go from zero to a hundred. It sounds like you can actually add in elements based upon what it is you want to achieve with that particular stretch of road. Is that accurate? Like we can just add bike lanes or we can add, add, you know, a bus shuttle lane or we can, we don't have to do the whole thing at one time. So yes and no. Let me elaborate on that a little bit. First, I think that's, that's a great point that you don't have to, you know, take just one bite at the apple and do it all at once. Because for a lot of municipalities and jurisdictions, that can be a lot. That can be very expensive all at once. Mm-hmm. And funds that resources that simply aren't available. But what we have seen a lot of especially smaller, more rural municipalities do are these demonstration projects. So they'll, you know, paint a bike lane 
where oh. they eventually want to build more substantial infrastructure, right? Just to show people kind of what it'll look like. These be temporary painted on projects that are not permanent, but help sort of, you know, gather community support. How interesting. Projects. And then the other, but the other side of this is I don't want to make it seem like, you know, you can just build a bike lane on top of a very dangerous road and call that a solution. Sure. You know, there's, you have to build safety into it. And we've been working on projects trying to build, you know, safer pedestrian and bicycle access in and around highway interchanges. And it's really hard, right? Because you need mm. to make people feel safe without making them feel isolated. Mm-hmm. And so these are planning conversations that are being had in a lot of places around the country and need to continue. Okay. So now transportation is perhaps getting a a little bit more awareness than it has in the past simply because of the infrastructure bill. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I'm interested, you know, in a couple of the things that you have written about is a it's not it's not a clean energy bill, but these are the ways that we could actually make clean projects happen through this money that's, you know, becoming available on the federal level. And then, you know, also, how does this achieve some of the principles or how can communities achieve some of the principles that your group, for instance, advocates? Sure. Thank you. And I want to bring out two major points here. So the first is that, like you said, this law is not a climate law. Mm-hmm. And there's a but there, as is present in my article. And then the second point is pumping the brakes a little bit on the giddiness of people to dump resources into electric vehicles as a solution. Mm. Uh, and electric vehicles can be a major part uh, of the solution. But these are sort of the two points I want to hit here okay. uh, in implementing this infrastructure law. Okay. And how much, let's just remind listeners, you know, what we're talking about here with this infrastructure law. So, you know, total for this infrastructure law, we're looking at $1.2 trillion, $643 billion of which goes to surface transportation. So that's sort of what we care about here. Okay. So this, and, and this is over five years. This is a substantial amount of money. This is a very significant investment. Absolutely. And it's starting this year in 2022? Uh, yes. Starting okay. this year in 2022. We're already seeing a lot of these notice of funding opportunities for competitive grants coming out. We're seeing the release of formula funds. So, so yes, this starting this year through 2026. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwani counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. The podcast is also brought to you by Destination Door County. Join Destination Door County in celebrating National Travel and Tourism Week from May 1st to the 7th. Tourism plays a critical role in financially supporting our residents and is the reason so many unique experiences, attractions, and things like restaurants, parks, and entertainment venues are available in Door County today for all to enjoy. 
Tax dollars generated from visitors also financially support municipal governments throughout the county and have helped pay for many park upgrades and public green space expansions. Join Destination Door County in recognizing the importance of travel in our community during National Travel and Tourism Week. Is this money actually going to be funneled down from the federal level to the state level to the county level, you know, in the traditional ways? Yes. So let me break this into two categories here. Okay. We see, you know, two the two major categories of federal spending coming out. So when, when we see this big number, $643 billion, mm-hmm. huge. Let's look at what that means. 87% of that is formula programs. So these are funds that are being released directly from the federal government to the states. Okay. And these programs generally have massive flexibility. So the largest of these formula programs, the National Highway Performance Program and the Surface Transportation Block Grant Program, and these two, you know, they're the largest portion of formula grants, meaning they're the largest portion of all the tra- all these 600 plus billion dollars in transportation funding and the infrastructure law. So very worth paying attention to here. Hmm. These two programs can basically be spent on anything. Wow. They can be spent on any highway project. So that can be maintenance, that can be road expansion. They can be spent on transit, meaning, uh, you know, transit capital, sadly not transit operating, okay. um, but transit capital, like, you know, building new, new rail or new, a new bus lane, things can like you, that. Can you buy a bus with it? Yep. You buy okay. A bus. And as well as active transportation, bike, pedestrian, again, very broad flexibility. Okay. That's this broad flexibility of these formula programs is why my article is titled The Infrastructure Law is Not Climate Legislation, but States Could Make It Green. Okay. Because the Georgetown Climate Center put out an analysis of all of this funding in the infrastructure law and found that there are two, you know, sort of ends of the spectrum here in terms of how states could spend this money. There's a high emission scenario and there's a low emission scenario. Mm-hmm. In this high emission scenario, states spend, you know, use all this, all this big, wide flexibility they have and, you know, basically, you know, turn their nose up at any goals that the federal government might have to lower emissions and spend all of their money on highway expansion, okay. building new highways, expanding current ones. Then we see, you know, more and more traffic pour onto these highways, increasing and increasing emissions. And we actually see an increase in emissions beyond even if we didn't pass the infrastructure law. So it'd be actually a net negative. Okay. And and that would happen as well if we were just maintaining the roads. If you use this money to improve the roads that you currently have, because let's face it, a lot of, you know, counties and towns don't have the funds that they need on an annual basis to do the improvements that they need to do, or they're always talking about that. So even if they were to just use the money for maintenance, it really wouldn't achieve anything but the status quo. Right. So if they, you know, using all this money for expansion would, would be a big increase in emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, using it for all uh, maintenance, again, something we, we prioritize mm-hmm. is, is maintenance. Not going to do a whole lot for climate, but also not going to, hurt, not going to increase emissions all that much. Okay. So then there's this second scenario, this low emission scenario, 
where much you know less of this spending is on highway expansion. So we're, we're looking in the first scenario at 27% of all these formula of all these federal dollars going to highway expansion. In the second scenario, we're looking at only 4% of highway expansion. These are essentially the two ends of the spectrum of possibilities. Okay. In the second scenario, we see a substantial decrease in emissions. Mm-hmm. Really what we need to see in order for the U.S. to meet its climate goals, we see you know, more significant in investments in transit, in bike and pedestrian access and infrastructure, in electric vehicles. So the closer we get to that second scenario... Uh, in terms of how states spend their money, the more we're going to be able to do to slash emissions. Okay. So when they're getting all of these dollars, if they spend, you know, 27%, which is pretty much the maximum that they can spend on traditional highway expansion. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if they get down as low as 4%, then between 4 and 27%, they're doing things that support active transportation, public transportation, things that remove cars or vehicles from the road. Exactly. Okay. You know, giving people options to switch to different modes. Okay. Because I think a lot of people want to. Sure. Sure. Now you were talking, um, you said electric vehicles and that the answer is not, and I might be jumping ahead, but the answer might not be dumping everything into electric vehicles. Can you expand upon that? Sure. So electric vehicles are, of course, something of a stopgap, right? We have, you know, we're not going to be able to get everyone into, you know, public transit or walking and biking immediately. And so electric vehicles play a part. But we're seeing a lot of entities, uh, you know, advocates or, you know, state and local governments pouring a lot of resources into electric vehicles while sometimes ignoring these other, you know, modes of emissions reductions. Hmm. And we've seen this for a long time. Starting from the 90s through now, uh, our vehicles have gotten a lot more efficient, right? We, we've improved on gas mileage. And even so from, from 1990 to 2017, even as we saw an 18% increase in efficiency and a substantial uh, adoption of electric vehicles, we saw in that same period a 22% jump in emissions per capita and a 50% increase in vehicle miles traveled. So wow. the amount people are driving. So, and, and this is not just, you know, it would take us a long time. It would take us, you know, decades and decades to transfer our entire car fleet to electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. And in that time, you know, we would still be, you know, producing emissions and other environmental harms from pavement and concrete production. We'd still be, you know, impacting people with urban heat island effects, mm-hmm. um, which is when you have too much pavement in a place which traps heat in a community, you know, impervious surface runoff, mm-hmm. uh, vehicle manufacturing. We're, we're still getting all of this. We're still getting all of these environmental harms and these emissions from electric vehicles. Okay. So while they are part of the solution, we don't think they, that they should be the whole solution and we should look for a more holistic approach. Okay, because that's kind of interesting because they do need the same infrastructure, like even parking lots. You know, they still <laughs> need parking lots. So it's it's not, you know, the end-all, be-all. And plus, I don't know if you can answer this question either, but I've asked this a couple of times. If we were to transfer to all electric vehicles, 
Then what about the gas taxes that are collected? You know, those are the things that we currently use to maintain our highway system, right? So what would replace that? You know, how would we, how would we generate the revenues needed in order to be able to repair the roads? You know, that's a great question. We fund our transportation system uh, with all sorts of different revenue sources. Mm-hmm. I don't know if people realize that the, the aviation industry is uh, vast public subsidies that go to that. Really? So, you know, we, yes. Interesting. Uh, okay. We subsidize our aviation industry to a substantial degree. So that's just an example of a, of a mode of transportation that's not funded by gas taxes, but we figure out a way to do it. Okay. You know, and this is going to look different for every state and locality. Uh, and a lot of places are still figuring this out. Mm-hmm. We at, at Transportation for America, now that we are, you know, the, this round of the surface transportation program reauthorization that, you know, was successfully done with the infrastructure law, it'll happen again in five years. But for now, we've turned our focus to advocating on implementation and, you know, these, these sort of local fiscal questions will probably come up as part of that. But that's a good question. We're kind of running out of time here, Stephen, but I did want to ask you another question about, and maybe this will be an unfair question. You can you can tell me that hmm. if it is. But if, let's say that the money from this latest infrastructure bill, so Dora County gets its chunk of that money, right? So it goes hmm. from the state to the county. What is the best way for a county to use that money? If we were using that 4% model in a rural area, what is the best way in a, you know, just a projection, not knowing anything about Door County, of course, that's the unfairness part of it, but it is an 80 mile long peninsula. We have no fixed route public transportation systems. We have basically door to door public transportation that is paid for by the county. So what would you recommend? So it's hard to know, you know, certainly I think a good fundamental principle here for deciding how to spend spend this money is asking people how they want to get around. Ah, right? Right. You know, engaging people in the planning process, engaging the public in, you know, sort of a free form redesign of mm. their community. It's really interesting when you when you ask children and who we who we know have you know these these wonderful imaginations, how they would like to design their communities, and you give them this blank slate. But you design these beautiful, beautiful communities. Really um, interesting. Yeah, there's there's some cool examples worth noting. And so I think we could do the same thing with us grownups if we you know took a step back from what the you know what has always been the case with our transportation system. And took an opportunity to look at it from, you know, a bird's eye view and say, what do we need here? What, what, what do we want? How do we want to get around in an ideal world? And we've found a lot of communities that, in, you know, historically were very car centric, getting to places where people love their local transit system or a bike culture develops in a place. So I think really it's a matter of engaging the community, figuring out what they want, and, you know, in general, guiding the conversation towards access over, you know, just measuring congestion. The solutions are there and it's going to be highly dependent on the local context, but it's a lot just a matter of getting out of that, you know, tired paradigm of 
you know, we just have to move cars as fast as possible all the time. Excellent. I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. Stephen, thank you so much for your expertise and, you know, kind of breaking this down for us and giving some really solid suggestions as to what we could do. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I'm Deborah Fitzgerald talking with Stephen Kenny from the Transportation for America organization. And you're listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.